When I first started studying the Messianic movement, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, because I uh, was working on my dissertation, <laughs> but more importantly, because I was working on my own faith. I had struggled with the sense that something was missing, and uh, the more I went back into church history, uh, the more I felt like that piece was always missing. And then I discovered the uh, um, the first century context uh, and tried to start my own Judeo-Christian movement. And when I bumped into the Messianics, I found out that my movement had one person in it and theirs had several. <laughs> uh, so I started hanging around the, uh, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. And there were, uh, there were three men particularly who uh, didn't treat me like an oddball and would answer my questions and would explain things to me in a way that uh, as I struggled through my Christian context, um, they would, they would uh, work with me on that. Um, you have met uh, two of them, one you're going to meet again today. Um, Dr. Shipman uh, introduced me to Judaica. He had his table there. I would come out and talk to him. And uh, uh, I never left a conference, I think, without uh, trying to figure out how to uh, uh, purchase some of that stuff so I would understand it. I grew up in a church context where uh, the only thing you had was a Bible. And uh, to, to realize that, that there are uh, items that can be used to enhance and to fulfill the worship and all of that was just uh, a new thing to me. Over the years, he's become a very, very good friend uh, and a comfort in uh, the last year particularly. Uh, I was having a particularly bad day. And uh, Rabbi Shipman was at the Western Wall and he put a little paper into that wall with Braden's name on it, prayed for Braden, and then texted me to let me know he had done that. And there was a sense of God's presence in his body, Jew and Gentile, in the Messiah, loving one another. And uh, that's, that's, that's important. It's important to know the truth. It's more important to do the truth. And so um, my friend is going to come and speak to you again. He's going to sit here um, and uh, because he's a doer of the truth. Come and speak to us. Is this on? Yes. Okay. It's a blessing to be back here. Um, It's just good to be here. I, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, and I wonder when they send the kids out, are they afraid I'm going to say something inappropriate? <laughs> Sometimes that happens if you're a native New Yorker. But, but I've learned to, you know, keep it clean. I'm going to be speaking this morning from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I always, when I read scripture, I bring questions to it. My first question is not to the scripture, but to you. How many of you woke up this morning and felt like the salt of the earth? I didn't think so. All right, second one. How many of you felt like the light of the world? It's a pretty dim group. I don't wake up feeling like the salt of the earth or the light of the world. But the scripture says, Yeshua said, you are the salt of the earth. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. You are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. My first thought is, why doesn't he let someone else do it? Let someone else be the salt of the earth. Why do I have to do it? But we do have to do it. You really don't have a choice. Do you know why you have to be the salt of the earth? Or why you have to be the light of the I mean, if my friends see me, they go, you're the salt of the earth? You're the light of the world? Come on. Why do you have to be the salt of the earth? In one word, redemption. If I mention the word redemption, and I ask you to explain it to me, you might give me a nice theological thing you learned that Jesus redeemed us, we're redeemed. His blood redeemed us, so now we're redeemed. Well, you know what that tells me? It tells me nothing. Let me explain to you what it means to be redeemed. I was here, was it a year ago or maybe two years ago? It was a while back. Uh, maybe you guys didn't know me before that. Uh, I used to be a very heavy person. I would not be able to sit in one of these very comfortable, nice chairs. Uh, not, they wouldn't have been wide enough. Um, I had a medical condition called, uh, well, it's a syndrome, a metabolic syndrome. No matter what I ate, no matter how little, no matter what it was, my body stored everything. So I couldn't burn off any weight. And that led to diabetes, and it led to uh, very high cholesterol. And my doctor said, on the trajectory I was going, if I didn't lose the weight, I would be dead in five years. Uh, this was unsettling. So I went to my loving insurance company. Uh, I won't mention their name, but they have a cross. <laughs> and... Uh, they said, we, we don't cover that surgery. There's a, a surgery that will solve your problem, but we don't cover it. I said, but the doctor said, I'm going to die. They said, we don't care. We don't cover it. And I'm not a rich man. I don't have a lot of money. I certainly didn't have money for surgery. So I started telling my friends if you want to see me, you better do it in the next five years because I'm going to be dead. Which all in all isn't 
you know, the worst thing that could happen to me. You know, but, but still, I felt it wasn't my time. God put me here to do things. He put me here to serve him. I had family. Uh, it, it just wasn't right. One of my friends said, I will raise the money for you. Now, I had other friends who thought it was great. They gave me diet plans. Really, a diet. I never thought of that. You know, come on. Diets don't work. We have a multi-billion dollar industry for diets. They don't work. I tried them all. And I was very earnest about them. Sometimes you lose, but then you gain it back plus more. You've heard that. And then usually the people who were telling me how to lose weight were the scrawniest people you ever met. And they never had a weight problem. And I felt, oh, the voice of experience. I didn't have any hope. And I felt, I'm going to die. My friend wrote letters to my friends. And he said, we'll raise the money. I said, they don't care enough. Not for big money. If you ask them to give $100 to something, they'll give $100. But we're talking over $20,000. Four months later, my friend said we raised all the money. All of it. And I was shocked. Because some of these people were not very wealthy people. But they opened their checkbooks. And they wrote very big checks. Because they were interested in saving my life. So I went to my surgeon a Chinese Christian named Moses. It couldn't have been any better. <laughs> and I told him my story, and I said, we don't have to deal with the insurance company stuff. He goes, oh, good, then we can just schedule the surgery because the insurance companies make you go through hopes. They'll do anything to keep you from having to have them spend money. Uh, this isn't about insurance companies, though. Um, he, when he found out how the money came about. He even lowered the price a little. But um, I had the surgery. And over the course of a year, I lost 150 pounds. And here I am in all my sleekness. Um, I'll tell you, it changed my life. I can travel easier. I use a cane. I used to use a cane before because the weight on my joints was so bad. Now, everything, all my medical problems went away except for blood pressure. So I'm on, because I was told that was genetic, a gift from my grandmother. Uh, so uh, I'm on very three different meds for blood pressure. One of them gives me a side effect that makes me dizzy. Um, and then, well, actually, both two of them make you dizzy. One of them is a med to counteract the dizziness, but the side effect of that is it makes you dizzy. So I use the cane for balance. But other than that, I'm fine. I can go everywhere, and I can do whatever I need to do. And the thing is, my friends gave sacrificially that I might live. And the way it transformed me was that it made me realize that I now have an obligation to live my life in a way that honors my friend's sacrifice for me. By the way, this would have been year four. I would have had one year left. Hopefully I won't be hit by a bus. But, <laughs> but my, 
their sacrifice was significant. And I have to live my life in a way that honors it by doing the ministry I do. But it made me think, for all believers, we need to live our lives in a way that honors Yeshua's sacrifice for us. That's why it says, your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. We need to live our lives in a manner worthy of the Lord, not for ourselves. Yeah, you can do some things for yourself. You know, you want to go to Dairy Queen, it's fine. But uh, I even get a little, never mind. But, <laughs> but uh, how do we invest our lives? We don't come to a service to be entertained. We come to ascribe worthiness to the one who redeemed us. And we need to live our lives before our children, our parents, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Because that's what it means to be a redeemed people. It wasn't just an insurance policy to get you out of hell. It was that you might live in a way that brings him honor. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You need to do what salt does. Give it flavor. Enhance the lives of the people around you. You are the light of the world. It's a very significant phrase. You are the light of the world. If you think about how people come to the Lord and what motivates them to become believers. It's usually not your brilliant uh, arguments as to why they need to know the Lord. Most people accept the Lord for reasons other than intellect. It's the reality. When I, Before I was a believer, I had people witnessing to me and they would show me Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and you know all the messianic prophecies that point to Jesus being the Messiah. I usually don't say Jesus. That's like I'm I'm being cross-cultural for you guys. <laughs> Figured you'd, you'd get it. But um, they shared all that stuff. And I go, you know, that's very nice. I don't need that. What changed me was seeing Yeshua in the lives of my friends. That's what you were talking about. Seeing Yeshua in other people's lives. Because your arguments might be interesting. They might even be compelling. But they're not irresistible. You may be a nice person. You may be very interesting. But I, I, you're not irresistible. Everybody is resistible. But Yeshua is irresistible. If you really see him, you want to know him. If you really come to see him in people's lives, you want that. I accepted Yeshua because I wanted him and I saw him in the lives of other people. That's what brought me into relationship with him. 
not all the great arguments. And it's been quite a ride. But I've never regretted one day of it. You are the light of the world. You don't have to worry. You don't have to generate the light. You have to let people see the light in you. That's what it says. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. A lot of times we try to back off on doing good works. It sounds like social gospel or, you know, if you people can't see the good things you're trying to do, they can't see Yeshua in you. The ministry that I do, that I spoke about last time, Hevra, is a ministry that seeks to let Yeshua's light shine before men. Our work is mostly feeding elderly and other poor Jews in the former Soviet Union and in Israel. When we go to them, we don't hold up the gospel like it's a piece of meat and hold up a piece of meat and say, if you want this, you got to listen to this. Because people are not stupid if they're hungry. They're hungry. If they think you're trying to buy their soul for a piece of bread, you think they don't know it? But when we say to them, you're Jewish and you're hungry, come, come to our soup kitchen, we'll feed you. And they don't have to listen to a sermon. It makes them think. And when we keep doing it, not just once or twice, but when we keep doing it regularly and never put a requirement on them, they start coming to us. So what is it that you believe? Because now that they want to know, they see the light in us. We've had a lot of people come to Yeshua just by feeding, by helping. And it's, you know, and we're not a big ministry. It's, it's like, there's a term in Yiddish called Luftmenschen, people of the air. Our ministry is like that. It's like we operate on air, you know, like on fumes. We, we don't have money half the time, but with very little, we get to do a lot. I don't know how, but we somehow managed to. Uh, you guys helped uh, donate so we could uh, put that, um, re- read it when it goes on the website. It was a really nice letter I got uh, as a report back from uh, Israel. Uh, you put a, a, a humanitarian container there. It's helping people in Netanya and elsewhere. It doesn't just help uh, Holocaust survivors. It helps single mothers who can't afford diapers. It, it helps uh, uh, elderly. It helps crippled people. Uh, it, it, uh, we, we even help some Arabs. I mean, if people are in need, we want to be a light to them. Uh, our, one of our major things that we're trying to do now is open up a soup kitchen in uh, Crimea in Ukraine. You've probably heard of Crimea from the Crimean Wars, even if you don't know. It's a peninsula. It's like the Florida of Ukraine, but it's not Florida. Um, it's where Yalta was, where uh, at the end of World War II, Stalin, Churchill, uh, and Roosevelt got together and pretty much divided up Europe. Uh, it used to be the Tsar's Palace. Uh, beautiful place. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of poor Jewish people there. Uh, I made several trips there this past year, and we established 
uh, a soup kitchen. Uh, give you an idea, it takes $1,500 to feed 30 people regularly. Not a lot of money. Uh, but we've been, we don't have it in the budget, so I managed to squeeze five, $500 out of the budget towards the soup kitchen. Uh, my coworkers in Poland managed to get another 500. We're looking for the next 500. And actually more than that because there are really 70 people who need help. And we're only able to help 30 right now. Actually, it's more like 20, but we're working on it. Um, so if when you guys help, it makes a difference. It, it, it really it makes a difference in these people every day because they get to eat. And uh, I visit these people in their homes. I'll, I'll tell you, some of them don't have running water. If you don't have running water, it means your toilet's outside in the back. One guy had a bucket in the, in the garden, uh, and that was his only toilet. Uh, someone was lucky enough to have running water in their house, uh, but it was only in the kitchen. So they had a toilet in the kitchen. Uh, it's really not our experience in America. Um, we go there, we face opposition. I'll give you an example. On the last trip we went there, um, we uh, flew from Krakow, uh, where our, we are centered. Uh, we, we went from Krakow to uh, Kiev. We got to Kiev and we had to get on another flight to uh, Sevastopol, which is Crimea. We got there uh, about an hour before the flight, same as everywhere, and we're getting ready to check in, and they go, oh, your tickets aren't valid. Really? What do you mean? We paid for them. They're not valid. Um, you have to go to the ticket agent. We go to the ticket agent. They say, oh, no, we canceled your tickets. Really? Why did you cancel our tickets? It was some small print in Ukrainian. Who reads Ukrainian? Uh, uh, saying that you had to present more uh, documentation of who you are. Uh, we didn't do that. We just had our passports. So they, we said, they said you could buy tickets now. How much are tickets now? $1,100. When we bought them, they were like 200 So uh, my coworker, Eric, who I travel with, is getting all upset and, wait, relax. How much is a ticket tomorrow? I can get you on the flight tomorrow for $220. Sold. So, we get, so he's going, what are we going to do? I said, don't worry. We'll go to a hotel. We'll get dinner. We'll relax. We'll go refreshed in the morning. You know, you have to be flexible when you do a ministry like this. So we get there in the morning. The hotel was nothing to brag about. Uh, neither was the dinner, but it was all right. We got there in the morning, and uh, the, the flight was still on, and we, were, we had valid tickets, so we're ready to go. And they go, the flight's delayed an hour. No problem. We text them in Sevastopol. We're delayed an hour. No problem. Three hours later, they go, it's going to be another hour or two. We text them in Sevastopol. Okay, now when I go on these trips, they never tell me what I'm going to do beforehand. So it's like, you've got to think fast on your feet. We eventually got there. They met us at the airport, uh, brought, me, uh, brought us to the uh, meeting place. They had 16 leaders from all over Crimea. Uh, the leaders, the Messianic leaders there have had no training. And I taught them from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m., so uh, six hours uh, just teaching, talking about how to be a leader of a congregation. Um, and they were so open and so hungry to get, 
it was a blessing. That's what helped me go for the six hours. They did bring me some lunch, which was good. Uh, after that surgery, I got to eat every few hours. Uh, but um, everything went well. Uh, the next day, we were supposed to have a concert. They had asked us for extra money that month so they could publicize it. So we were doing a Messianic music concert. They rented the Palace of the Arts. Beautiful, uh, there's a word in Yiddish, angapachke. No, uh, it, it, it means overdone. You know, it's like the typical Russian style, everything with gold trim and, you know. And we got there and the Minister of the Arts said, no, we want to use this for a dance recital. So we're not letting you meet there. But we advertised it. We have people coming. We had a contract. Sorry, that's how Jews are treated over there. Uh, it doesn't matter if you had a legal contract. So finally we said we'll meet in the facility uh, that we have this, the worship services in. Uh, a room about two-thirds the size of this one. Uh, and who comes to these things? Jewish people. We had like 150 people get into a room that would have been basically that side of the room. It was packed. And I gave a little teaching and whatever, and then they just had music. But pe people took it in stride. I said, you know, we had a beautiful palace prepared for you, but uh, apparently God wanted us to be closer together. You know, and uh, there was standing room only. Uh, but we had a great service. A lot of Jewish people said they wanted to hear more and they wanted to come back. Contacts were made. It was a very good opportunity. But we face opposition of different kinds everywhere you go. That doesn't mean God isn't in it. Being the light of the world means you, you go through it and you, you let Yeshua shine in your life. So we are doing what we can to be a light. Um... When I come and share about Hevra, honestly, I'm not a fundraiser. Bruce knows me. This isn't what I do. I'm, my, my, my gift's are pastoral, and I try to be pastoral. But I guess what I'm telling you is we're doing really good things. They're really good things. They're life-changing things for people. And I'm inviting you to become involved. I'm inviting you to have a part in these things we're doing. And the reason is you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you.